Welcome to the Esri and the Science of Wear podcast. Travelers are often the toughest critics of the hubs they move through. Recently, the passengers who experienced the San Francisco International Airport, or SFO, voted it the best airport in North America. Josephine Young, Director of Infrastructure Information Management at SFO, credits the airport's digital twin for bringing new efficiency that not only earned customer accolades, but also improved the way its employees and stakeholders collaborated. 99% of our stakeholders, right off the bat on the opening day of this building, the maintenance person's already seeing it on their iPad. The first responders, if there's an incident, a fire in this building the first day of opening, they know where to go because it's already in the system. Esri CMO Mariana Cantor investigates how location data and geospatial technology helped SFO become a world-class airport ready for the future. Hello, Josephine, and welcome to the Esri and the Science Aware podcast. Thank you, Mariana. It's my pleasure. The San Francisco airport multi-year, multi-billion dollar modernization effort received a lot of press. We'll get to all the details of this transformation, but maybe in a few words you can explain it or define it for us. What happened? What did the San Francisco airport do? Yeah, that's a, that's a big question. Um, but just kind of launching off from, you know, the multi-billion dollar modernization effort you've mentioned. Recently, we have just completed our ascent phase one of our capital program. Um, so there's a lot of uh, big infrastructure that we have built, um, something that you probably have seen. We have built our long-term parking garage, a Grand Hyatt Hotel, which is one of their flagship for the Bay Area now. Uh, we have a brand new Harvey Milk Terminal 1. So those are just a feel monumental built that we have within this multi-billion dollar program. Um, so that's just kind of a taste of what, what SFO does is we not only build things, but also we maintain them after we build. Right. So to give our listeners uh, a sense of the scale uh, of this project, how large is the airport? How many people come through? How many you know, planes take off? Give, give us a sense. Yes, I'm going to sound like uh, I'm going to nerd out with you for just a moment because I think the best way to describe it is with numbers, right? Quantifying them. Um, so SFO uh, contains four bi-directional runways, over 100 plus gates, and, and there's more is coming online as well as we speak, um, 600 plus infrastructures, not big, small, you know, all of the vertical infrastructures we have, um, 36 miles of roadways, and, and we actually own land that is across from the freeway from us, 2,000 plus acres of land, you know, that is really owning the land beyond our footprints of just the airplane footprints. Um, over a billion dollars worth of underground utilities. And believe it or not, we have two wastewater treatment plants on site, a little city that we run. That's massive. That's totally mm-hmm. massive. And I understand that part of this effort is was digitizing this entire environment and all its complexity. And one fact struck me was that there are 400, you mentioned, lines that run below the airport. There are 400 miles of utilities below Mm -hmm. the surface of the airport, and they date back to 1930s. Tell us about this digitization effort. How did you arrive at it, and Mm -hmm. how are you keeping it to date? That's a great question. I love that you're mentioning about our underground utilities, because uh, when we first started thinking about starting geographic information system technology, GIS at SFO, um, underground utilities was the data set that we started with mainly because we felt like it was the most robust and it's going to give us the biggest bang for our bucks, you know, our investments. Because we all know that how expensive it can get if we hit a line. 
Um, so where we started is really just looking through the asphalt. So you mentioned 1930s. I mean, uh, that was hopefully be before many of us were born here on this call. And so we're just like, we tackle into the asphalt drawings, but also realizing how unnormalized they are. There's no standards to it, but we just start, you know, owning it. And along the way, not only project drawings do we start digging into, we started crowdsourcing that information. Once we set the foundation of what we have, um, and we're talking about all the different the storm drains, right? The, all the wet utilities, all the telecom, the electrical um, substations, you name it, we got our hands on it. Even the fuel system lines underneath it um, that we don't own, but we still want to make sure that we see the whole campus wide you know, utilities um, picture. And so when we talk about crowdsourcing um, down the line was we enabled our facilities folks. You know, we have our maintenance engineering, our plumbers, you know, out there. Not only do we give them map books if they're not as you know, familiar in using a device or those who are familiar in using a device, we give them a, a laptop or a iPad. And that's when something, you know, that they replace or when the trenches are open, they go out there and they capture this information and bring it back to GIS for us. And that's how we just, over the last 13 years, that's how we started building the underground utilities data set. So it, it took 13 years to really digitize the entire sort of, you said 600 infrastructures. Um, those are vertical ones and then all the underground networks as well. Is that sort of a correct characterization? Yeah, definitely. Um, 13 years. And so just to mention about the magnitude of what we built, I mean, what I touched upon was just the underground utilities, but you're correct. You know, we touch from all different, four different environments from the sky, which is the airspace, all the way to the vertical infrastructures, the 600 plus, all the horizontal stuff, all the pavement, roadways, vehicle service roads, runways, taxiways, right? And then the underground utilities. Let, let's talk about some stakeholders. You have some examples about the retailers. How did they use the digital twin? How do they benefit? Mm -hmm. I would say, you know, just kind of thinking about a retailer's journey, you know, where they first come to the airport, they need to be able to identify whether that space is going to work for them, right? That we're going to be leasing it to them. So when they are awarded the contract, they need to be able to modify that space. And that's when GIS can come into play. Not only are they able to see the connectivity of these, you know, HVAC, the systems behind the scene on the roof, how they're going to connect their appliances to, or, you know, whatnot the design to. So we work very closely with the tenant improvement designers that they bring on board, giving them the asphalt drawings, giving them background drawings and all the data. And also, not only that, we also integrated with our retail system, which is our ABMS, our property management systems. So all that historical information of how that space was used, who was the previous tenant, uh, maintenance records even, are going to be able to share it with this new tenant. And of course, once they're onboarded, you know, once they're open for business, we are now talking about how to help navigate these customers too closer to their business, be it because they're going to pass by that business when they go to their gate, or we're dreaming big here. It's they work with me, we are Rihanna. We even thinking about how can a customer, before they leave home, can able to map out their route from home to curb to gate, but through it, 
how can they actually manage to secure enough time, relaxation time, to spend money at these concessionaires that is along their pathway to the gate? Mm-hmm. Is that in phase two? This is this makes total sense. Well, thank you. Yes, no, yeah. Uh, this is ongoing. So we are actually working on a navigation pass that SFO can own and potentially share out with you know any other airlines who might want to have SFO navigation path on their app or even on the customer side of things. What about some other stakeholders? For example, first respondents. Give us some examples or maintenance personnel. You mentioned plumbers, engineers, operators. Give us a few more examples of how they use this this digital representation of the airport. Um, Wayfinding is a big question mark in you know a campus our size, and so what our data sets can do on this navigation path, especially, it's able to guide the first responders to a room or a space of incidents before they even get to it. And so when there's, because we are also connected to the 911 system and also the emergency response system. So when there's an incident, the first responders can now pull it up on a map and can see what is the closest path. If there's somebody maybe already on site close to that area so they can dispatch to first, and also, is it going to be an automatic door or secure door that they need to get through? Is it a fire rated door or not that they need to get through? So all those kind of almost like a, like the, the show 24, I know I'm dating myself now, uh, where Jack Bauer has Chloe to assist of navigating online first. That's really what's happening here now. It almost sounds like you can't predict all of the use cases and benefits of uh, having your entire sort of San Francisco airport in a digital environment where you can interact with it to even understand what the possibilities are. Like you're saying, you're dreaming big. Like, would you agree that it's not like you had the use case defined and then you digitized the, you know, this, the sort of infrastructure, but instead you sort of understood and believed and had faith in the fact that this is going to reap benefits and it is like how would you talk about that you know that mariana that's exactly the model we we have the foundation of data sets and we know that what are the must-have like the compliance uh, like part 139 with faa those we definitely know how to leverage the data set to support but most of these type of use cases really is real life request or desire coming from the stakeholders to us. And so we want to make sure that they know to come to us and discuss what what's their pain points. You know, sometimes we even go out and shadow them to understand what is it that they are looking for so that we are on the same page. But you're right. We, I, we feel that the model is the most successful when we know that the desire is coming from our stakeholders asking for it. Um, and there's a vested interest too, right? I mean, they walk away, they really wanted to make sure that this, you know, this is going to be implemented and used, not us pushing a use case on those. Right. I think this is a good moment maybe for you to help us understand your and your team's role in this. So when I say we're PMs is because we not only maintain the database of all the data sets that we have, we socialize it and we reach out to all the stakeholders. And so along the way, I think... Something as organic as word of mouth, when a maintenance person may be using our data sets or our apps, 
And the other maintenance groups will start wondering, like, what are you using? Why? How can you get to that gate so quickly? And that will trickle down business cases to us to a point where right now we have an online request system that is just for a quick turnaround, you know, request of GIS anything, be it a map, be it data analytics, um, turnaround quickly, meaning 72 hours turnaround. We generate 400 of those requests per year. Wow. And Yeah. And that's just a very small subset of what that team does on the day-to-day basis. We oversee 65 different applications that we created for our stakeholders, and that including training, deploying, maintaining, you know, um, and then I can speak more to it um, regarding what type of apps those might be. And then where there's the big initiatives that we also uh, get involved into. Um, such as we are building an airport integrated operation system. What it means is that we're going to have a control center that integrates all of our emergency systems. And so we're involved in how to create that and how to support that. Um, And so just that is so much to talk about what the role does. But when it comes to business cases, we really talk to our stakeholders like they are our client. They bring a business case to us. We really scope it out. And I think partially it turned us into really good listeners. So we're, we're not out there pushing that like data to people or pushing the use of GIS to this thing, but really organically growing it together. There's another success that was in the writing about this program, which I found odd, but I want to ask you about it. It's about the fact that there were no lawsuits over the construction, which is unusual as it turns out. So why is this unusual and how did you avoid these lawsuits? I know in a traditional sense, a lot of the projects are done with a design bid build type of, you know, proposal. But for us with these, the capital program, especially these terminal builds, the big construction projects, they're all delivered through a progressive design build methodology. Um, meaning that, in summary, we're able to ideate and, you know, really contribute as owners of how to shape the outcome. What do we want the design to look like? What do we the fun stuff, right? What do we want the customer experience, the journey moments to look like for these customers before we talk about cost? And so when there's no money at stake, when there's no budget, you know, kind of stifling your creativity, that whole game is a game changer. We all get in a room and we really just roll up our sleeves and talk about what is the possibility of building the best lead product or building for us. And then we'll discuss, well, what is the cost look like? How do we share the success and also the failures? How do we move forward together? I think that that sets the pillar, um, anchor it. Um, And a couple more. The second thing is the stakeholders engagement program that we have at SFO. Um, something that I just show really grateful for because this foundation really allows everyone, no matter where you are within the organization, has a voice and unheard and it can be, it will be addressed. And so meaning that we will have all these different work sessions of different topics about this design build project. And also the outcome is we all align with a common purpose. We agree to disagree or we know where we're going 
and we're, we really respect the collective wisdom in the process. And so that's our stakeholders engagement program. And it comes from all the way from the director to the executives levels, to managerial, all the way down to the custodians. We all have a voice to contribute. Uh, there is a management theory says that big transformations don't happen without executive sponsorship. Is this, <laughs> yes. is this relevant in the, to this case? Yes, it's very relevant. Um, you know, we would not be able to dream big uh, or even feel that we can uh, safely dream big without the executive sponsorship. Uh, and I'm very fortunate to say that, you know, SFO has always have the mindset of being progressive and being the best airport um, in the industry. And so I think that with those environments of growth and encouragement, you know, we feel that we can dream and we can actualize it and knowing that they will support us along the way. Seeing that it's not only transformation of a large airport and infrastructure, it's also transformation of the industry. Traditionally, construction, engineering, design operations have all been you know, largely separate data sets and workflows. Mm-hmm. And that made it difficult to get a clear picture of you know, scenarios, trade-offs, collaboration opportunities during sort of both the development and the maintenance and operations process. So I love the way that you're describing how you broke down these silos. Maybe you could um, give us a few examples. We talk about the why. We really want the project team to understand why this SFO, you know, embracing the VDC, the virtual design construction methodology the way we do. What are our principles and where do we want to go together? At the end of the day, the why lays on being able to transfer all of these as managed models or all these turnover products to our facilities maintenance folks and all this 99% of our stakeholders right off the bat and the opening day of this building, the maintenance person's already seeing it on their iPad. Um, the first responders, if there's an incident, a fire in this building, the first day of opening, they know where to go because it's already in the system and the standardized. So we want the, the team, the people who are designing, constructing to understand there's a purpose to what they do for us. And the second most important thing is we give them standards. So we mobilize into these the space right off the beginning as owners is we tell them what the standards of the data needs to look like. So they walk away knowing that is not just like, oh yeah, I'm just gonna mesh this together and deliver over and see if it fits their system. No. And the, one of the main thing also is we incrementally collect these information. Traditionally, I think the project team will say, okay, we're about to close out the project now. Here's your ass, folks. Uh, Good luck. Nobody checks it. By the time we pick it up, it's probably not reflective of the physical state of the built. Mm -hmm. But what we do now, our team, is we have incremental engagement. And we collect these models. We validate it against our standards. And we also are able to now make sure that the built is matching the physical built. I want to talk for a few minutes about the actual experience through this transformation. We talked about that executive engagement is key, but what were some of the other success factors so we can learn from your success? I think people often don't really think about how technology will not be at its maximum opportunity or optimum stage unless you really pair it with the right process that fits your organization. 
And so I think that success factors is really being a process-minded team, no matter what it is that we're trying to build. And one thing, one of the things that we always use within the team to anchor ourselves is it's called POP plus T. Something I learned from the Stanford BDC certification program. And the P starts with the people. And so we always want to make sure that the people your desires are aligned with what we're trying to do, right? Much like what we talked about earlier is their vested interest. The O, the o is for organizing the data. Do you have standards, you know, or are we just kind of like shooting off the hip and hoping that it will work? So it's organizing data. The third P is process. So like I said, process-minded. The last piece is T, which is technology. So the POP, let's see, technology does not come first. It comes last because once we understand the POP, then you plug in the right technology. And that's when we, when GIS comes into play and just fits seamlessly, and that's when we got something special. And I think that that's really the success factors. A lead accreditation that you got, which is a globally recognized symbol of sustainability or sustainable achievement, it says essentially that your infrastructure of the building is, you know, highly efficient and cost efficient and uh, is essentially a green building. So last year, you received, you know, a platinum certification for the entire airport campus. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I think... Uh... Definitely is a goal that we have been striving for, for gosh, you know, a number of years. And it took us a lot of effort to get to that point. But we also have to say that there was a lot of um, opportunity that presented itself along the way. Um, and speaking to that, that billion dollars worth of capital program, you know, I think our director sets the goal of how we build the standards of what type of building that we, we strive to have. And I think that really everything stems from the thought, right? And the thoughtfulness behind it uh, before we just pick up a hammer and say, let's just design and build and then come back later and figure it out. Um, so I think that we saw the opportunity right off the bat and the, how the technology or even the data sets comes into play is that we're able to leverage analytics a lot. Um, the integration of other type of information, other type of even industry standards into uh, location data, for example, helps a lot with how do we, you know, where do we even place a building, right? How do we simulate the success at the end? How do we visualize it? Um, all that comes into play, you know, with with our team supporting this effort. And now we're just moving forward, you know, the, the award is definitely a humongous milestone for us to to know that we are on the right track. But now we're able to leverage the data sets, right, this, this baseline to know what the plan of attack moving forward, right, so to say. And so we have a dashboard built. Now we know where all the buildings are, where the next coming builds are going to look like and how would they influence each other. Um, so at the end of the day, we want the entire campus, you know, to be a part of this program and continue on and, and even have more success, not just on the lead side, but coming into maybe perhaps even air quality, perhaps even, right, uh, carbon. And we're talking about EV chargers. There's a lot of things that we're tackling into. That is really fantastic. Thanks so much for this incredibly interesting conversation and huge congratulations on the incredible effort. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you for listening to the Esri and the Science of Our podcast. 
and thanks to Josephine Young for explaining how geospatial technology future-proofed one of the world's most strategic infrastructure hubs. If you like this episode, please share it with a colleague.